Hey, welcome everybody to Radio Free Nintendo. This is episode 179, and we got everybody here, James, Greg, John Lindemann, I'm your host, Jonathan Metz, and uh, we've got an action-packed show for you. We're going to start with new business, and Greg is up first with some game that I cannot even pronounce. Yeah, so I'm sure the uh, the people on our staff that are familiar with Japanese can laugh at me attempting to pronounce the name of that game <laughs> shortly. Uh, but I did want to mention a couple of things. Uh, today I've got Dead Space Extraction in. Um, uh-huh. I haven't had a chance to play it yet, but I, I, I'll probably talk about that next week. Uh, very, very uh, reasonable price, although still slightly more expensive than the original Dead Space for me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was quite amusing, but uh, yeah, I, I've been interested in trying out one of these like good games for a while and greg i don't remember you ever saying much about the original dead space i remember you saying that you got it so can you give us a no, quick no, i update? haven't spoken about it on the show really um i enjoyed it a lot i played through it from beginning to end mm-hmm. it was fun uh it's, it was a little bit repetitive at times certainly yeah. but which is not something that uh seems to be particularly uncommon with with some of these hd games actually but uh yeah it, it was really good i and more several orders of magnitude worth the uh the price i paid for it oh yeah i would, I would certainly say that uh, and so, also, I, I had indicated previously I was not going to mention Metro Prime Trilogy on the show again, but I did want to bring up the fact that having got to Metro Prime 2 now, they really did neuter the Boost Guardian boss. Oh, really? Yeah, oh my god, it's so <laughs> easy. It's like they... they... <laughs> <laughs> they put him down, basically. It's so sad. Uh, Good. I mean, admittedly, my last experience of it was playing on hard, where it was just unbelievably difficult. But um, still, you could tell, even from you know, playing on veteran, like they really severely readjusted it. It's just, it doesn't, you know, like you've got the two phases to it, where it's in the ball boosting around, and then you've got the time where you can actually hurt it. Yeah. You don't have to go through as many cycles to kill it. And I think it does less damage to you, so it's that's been pretty heavily reworked. And, and I mean, it's it's for the best uh, in most respects. Maybe they went a little bit overboard, but it's quite early in the game. It's just yeah. you know that it really was a shocking uh, spike in difficulty at the time. So I'm glad they kind of made the effort to remedy that. I always felt it was a, a well-designed boss, and, and the only problem was that it just did too much damage. It was, and and of course your your health was always being taken away because you were still in the dark atmosphere so you put the two things together and it's pretty and also another thing actually the the, the you know when it breaks apart that it, it did this before but now it seems to do it much more prolific fashion uh when it breaks the the pillars in the arena the the, the health it spews out is just uh, you know very very plentiful um so you are well looked after <laughs> Even on veteran this time, if you, if you're playing on the Boost Guardian, so if that yeah. at all is any been any impediment to buying the trilogy or playing through Prime Two, don't worry. I I want more people to play Echoes. It's a wonderful game. Yeah, it's a great game. I really like it. I really I really do like it, and I, I the bosses are a really big part of that because I think they're quite a big step up on the the first one, as I kind of mentioned a couple of weeks ago. But uh, yeah, the the so the game with the very difficult name I will attempt now is Nuz. No Murasamecho, uh, I think is as well as uh, I'm going to cut it. You actually did it right. You're good. Okay, well, there you go. James approved. Um, it's just something about <laughs> mysterious castles or something, I think, uh, <laughs> when it's translated. Yep. Um, but what this game actually is, is kind of to Zelda what Kid Icarus was to Metroid. Because it's a Famicom Disk System game, and it's built on the same basic kind of engine, if you want to use that word, you know, the same technical foundation 
as Zelda was, just as Kid Icarus was kind of using the bones of the original Metroid. But you know, it's a very different kind of game. It's a pretty much a straight action game um, where you're playing in sort of ancient Japan going around sort of beating up ninjas and stuff uh, it's it's a bit like a shooter really i mean i guess um i've never played it but the uh, capcom's commando in the arcade okay. Um, okay. it's a bit like that i guess for what i've seen of that game um but instead of you know, being military themed it's uh japan themed and you know it's quite sort of fast and furious for a, for an nes game from 1986 and it's uh, very hard. I mean, I don't know whether that was one of the main things why it didn't come over to the West in any form, like a lot of the disc system games did, but it's I mean, just played through probably about the first 40% of the game. It's really, really difficult. But I think one of the things that makes it seem really difficult is you're playing with the four-directional movement of the original Zelda, but it's quite demanding what you're being asked to do in terms of dodging attacks and especially when you're kind of accustomed to being able to move in eight directions in a 2D game like that. It takes a lot to get used to, the idea that you can't, and then sort of disciplining yourself and stuff, and then when you get used to it, it's a bit more workable, but, yeah, I mean, it just, yeah, it's not that playable, you know, when it's like that. I mean, it's just a, it's just a fact. But there's some, there's some pretty cool things about it. The music's pretty cool. It uses that extra uh, channel that the disc system had. You know, it's funny because all I've ever heard about that game is is about its music, which is kind of yeah. Amazing. I mean, I don't think there's that many different tracks in the game. Like, basically, you've got two like sections uh, to to each level. One where you're outside the castle trying to get in, and then the castle segment itself. Which yeah, there isn't a huge difference between them. I guess the bigger difference is in the overworld section, if you want to call it that. You don't really have to kill the enemies; it's more about getting past them. Whereas once you get into the castle, it's like okay, if you want to get to the next room, you've got to kill a, you know, certain enemies to make the staircase appear or whatever. Well, that's that's basically just Zelda too, though. I mean, yeah, definitely, it's kind of very heavily influenced, clearly. Some other things about it, I mean, the, the the way the combat works is quite interesting in that you have, obviously it's only two buttons, but you have a sort of melee attack that kicks in automatically for enemies that are close by or for enemy projectiles that you can deflect. But then if you nothing's close by, you, you throw a projectile, which you can upgrade very shooter-like fashion. You can get multi-directional ones, ones that are on fire, you know, just gets more and more powerful. And certainly the game is a lot easier when you get on a roll with those powered up weapons. Now, when you get hit, does it revert back to the original weapon? Well, what it do, it's, it's a sort of a Contra style system in that you can get hit three times before you actually lose a life. Mm-hmm. Um, well, no, they're, they're te- in Contra, they're technically lives, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. You can could, you could get hit three times before you have to go back to a checkpoint. So it's a bit like Contra, mm-hmm. I guess, in that sense. But um, the difference is, like, there isn't any limited continues or whatever. It just used the save on the Famicom disk system. So... I mean, I don't think that would have been an impediment to it coming over because you could have just used a password and then, and the passwords could have been a lot simpler than they would have been for something like Metroid mm-hmm. because it's a relatively li- linear game. It wouldn't have been very complicated. If it followed Zelda, it could have had a battery in America. It could have had a battery, but I think a game that was really difficult and focused on Japanese culture, I just don't know whether they would have made the the cartridge would have been too expensive to justify. Maybe something they didn't feel as confident would sell. But if you were worried about that, you could have gone with the password, I guess is my point, as they did with Metroid. 
uh, and Kid Icarus, right? Uh, with another password game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, Greg, I have a question for you. You know, I, I guess you're playing this on the Japanese Virtual Console, right? Yeah, yeah. How do you find out about these games? I mean, there aren't <laughs> demos on Virtual Console. So, I mean, you're navigating through this, you know, all these menus in Japanese. And yeah. how do you choose which games to download? Because it seems like you have a pretty, you know, you have a pretty significant collection of Japanese games at this point. Yeah, well, I mean, this, this, God bless them. There's plenty of websites out there that have played some of these games that never came out in the West. And, uh, you've got was it HardcoreGaming101.net? I think mm-hmm. is quite good for yeah. that sort of thing. Uh, this is kind of famous because you know it's just one of the the relatively few Nintendo first party NES slash Famicom games that didn't that didn't come across. So right. I think there's an interest in it for that reason. Also, there's a few sort of historical things about it, like uh, they've they've referenced it. I think uh, there's a track in it for in Brawl at some yep. point. Uh, there's uh, it's referenced in Captain Rainbow. One of the characters, I think, the, the protagonist <laughs> appears in Captain Rainbow alongside the various uh, super obscure Nintendo characters that are in that. You know, so there there have been these little callbacks. And most recently, I hear I'm not exactly sure how this works, but there's going to be a mode based on it in that Sam. Samurai Warriors 3, oh. uh, the, you know, the, the, based on Dynasty Warriors or whatever it is, so it's, it's getting current again, sort of, I guess. Well, uh, the game also got ported to the GBA back uh, a couple Yeah, in ago. the Famicom Mini collection, which you know, yeah. a, we had uh, in the West, we had the NES uh, collection, but the Famicom Minis were much, much wider ranging, uh, loads and loads of uh, different, well, I think it got into 20-odd at least. In, in Japan, the Famicom Minis, and this was one of those again. So it's not a like a, a super super obscure game. No, I mean I've heard of it, so it's not. It's not yeah, really I mean obscure. the name probably doesn't help if it had a sort of catchy uh, no, anglicised name. Not. You could probably be a lot easier to remember. But yeah, you know, it, it, it's funny because the the way the the game the game is so shooter like in a lot of ways. It's it's quite odd that Nintendo made it. They don't tend to make games like that if you in that era where. You know, your power-ups were such a big part of your ability to succeed in the game and, and, and maintaining them. That that struck me, that this is just not something... I mean, Nintendo hasn't really made like an orthodox um, side-scroller shooter ever, as far as I know, and obviously well, this isn't a side-scroller shooter. There's the final level of Kid Icarus. Mm, yeah, I suppose you're right It's a little that. bit like that. It's a, yeah, that, that's that's not a bad point. But you know, it's it, it's it's a rarity for them to make something that, that's quite sort of uncompromising. It's quite, quite arcadey, but it's it's quite a cool little action title, really. And like I said, the the main thing is is the combat, like the way they vary things up. Like for instance, as the game goes on, they'll introduce ninjas that flash, and what that means is if you hit them with your melee attack, they blow up. So <laughs> well, that's presumably they're kamikaze ninjas. And that means that, <laughs> so all of a sudden you start to thinking about well which enemies can I you know, let get close to me and which ones can't and you know, that certain enemies will start dropping mines somehow I'm not sure <laughs> this is possible and or, or, you know, and they'll throw like projectiles that explode so you can't deflect them you've got to dodge them that's kind of really how the gameplay evolves from its most basic kind of form of you know really making you interpret when you're going to be able to use the range attack. And when you've got to use the melee, so it's a, it's it's a neat little game, I think. Uh, but I, I can understand why it wasn't brought across. Certainly, just uh, uh, 
if they were worried about Mario 2 being too hard, and I don't know whether that was the real reason, I think this might have fallen into that category as well. Well, in being so levied on, on cultural references too, it didn't help things. Sure, yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know, the music is, is very distinctly Japanese, and of course all the themes and everything. There's practically no text in the game, though. In fact, the only text other than the title screen is in English. Yeah. <laughs> That's That was common. I think it was on the NES, it was difficult to display Japanese characters it, it uh, was, and yeah. at that resolution, and so a lot of times they just use English. All right, well, that's Nazo no Murasamachu, uh, something like that, and maybe we'll get that as an import title on Virtual Console sometime. It'd it's nice. doable. Like it's it's, it's it totally like playable. It. Yeah. All right, John, you're up next, and I'm jealous that you got Batman. I think uh, I might have it tomorrow. Yeah. I haven't really played, actually, it's funny because um, I got a couple of Wii games today, or last night, yeah. that have actually derailed my Arkham Asylum playing, but... Yeah, Batman uh, Arkham Asylum, it's looking very good so far. The one thing that struck me first off is it uses the Unreal Engine, and I'm kind of seeing that a lot of games that use the Unreal Engine, they all have this certain look to them. They all have this kind of shiny look to them. It's kind of hard to describe. I could see the shininess. The one thing that I don't understand is why, in some cases, like the art style seems to go with it when there's no reason for that. Yeah. In terms of, like, I know it's a comic book style game, but why is Commissioner Gordon built like a brick shit house? Yeah. Like, he's. <laughs> He's like 60 or whatever, and he looks like Hagger. Mm-hmm. And then, but then, like, not every character looks like that because the Joker's obviously, you know, spindly. And I, I yep. just, uh, that, I don't know what's going on there. It's just, yeah. it's just Me Too character design. It's just a bad trend. Um, because I believe that Unreal Engine was also used by Bioshock as well. And that's exactly, that's the that's one of the first things that this game reminds me of. Not so much. I mean, obviously, a very different theme. Like, pretty much, you get trapped inside the the uh, Arkham Arkham uh, criminally insane asylum. So you're surrounded <laughs> by a bunch of crazy people, but very much like you know, kind of dark, dank sort of. Very much kind of like the same look to it, but very, very good, very, very good graphics. And it's much more of an of a straight up action game with walking up to guys, punching them, counter punching them, all kinds of attacks like that. Uh, you really get to like you know kind of scrap it out with these people. But you can also hit things with the the batarang. And uh, actually playing it made me think of something that I saw that uh, Mike Sklens, our podcaster alumnus, he said that what he finally realized after after beating it what made the game work he looked at it kind of like metroid in that well it, that you progress throughout the game like metroid and of course i hadn't played it at that time so i didn't know exactly what he meant i kind of had an idea obviously but and you can see that right at the start of the game because you immediately come across in this one room there is like this electrified security gate and there's a little you know there's a line going up to a box on the wall and of course, like typically in these games, the first thing I thought is, oh, uh, well, duh, there's obviously something in this room where you find it, you shoot it, punch it, whatever, and it unlocks that, that electrified security gate. But that's not the case. So you obviously have to go somewhere else, find something, and then come all the way back, which is interesting because in these types of games, I really haven't seen something like that. I mean, in this, which is kind of like a corridor shooter, sort of, 
you know, has kind of elements of a first-person shooter to it. You don't really see that very often. Like, you don't, like, most games are very straightforward. You just kind of go through, and if there's something to unlock or a puzzle, it's usually in that room. You don't have to go anywhere else. You don't have to really figure anything out. But apparently, I'm looking forward to more of that as the game unfolds, more kind of Metroid, like, going into this area, and then... Yeah, uh, I mean, there's there's definite retraversal, and, you know, you get new abilities that allow you to... I mean, a lot of it's kind of unlocking-type stuff, if you know what I mean. Like, obviously, the electrified door. I mean, you know, you get something that could unlock them. I mean, that's that's what it is. It's not necessarily quite so tied to a specific, like, physical ability like Samus would have. It is more like the ability to just take away this obstacle. Um, mm-hmm. But, it, yeah, I like that, obviously. I played through Batman relatively recently, just about, probably about um, six weeks ago now, and I enjoyed it quite a lot. The only thing I would say about it is that it really does run into some problems of repetition. I mean, they ran out of ideas for enemies somewhere halfway through the game, yeah. um, which, which hurts it, I, I, I think. Um, not, not too much. The combat is still interesting enough to be somewhat fun, um, and they do they put some some wrinkles in there, but just yeah, there's certain kinds of enemy fights that are reprised too many times. One particular kill room is just too long, and the finale is flat. It's wow, what an anticlimax! I was not pleased <laughs> with the finale, but still. The rest of the game can't be denied. It's really good. I really do. If you're partial to Batman, especially, you can't help but really yeah. admire what they did with it. And I, I grew up with Batman, so I'm I'm very excited to uh, play it for myself, which should be it should happen before next next episode. Yeah, I mean, just like from my impression, I mean, I know it's kind of been bandied around for like game of the year. I don't know if I'd go that far. Um, you know, based on Greg's comments, I don't know if. I don't know if it necessarily merits that, but it's obviously, it's very much probably one of the top four or five games of the year that's out there, at least on the HD consoles. Do you think it, it gets some bonus because the the brand has become somewhat less ridiculous due to the recent films? And, <laughs> yeah. and in part because, I mean, cause let's be honest, the Batman brand is absolutely fucking ridiculous. It has been at times, certainly. I mean... I mean, conceptually, it's silly, but sometimes it's just borderline farcical. I don't really think it's silly conceptually, but I think it was taken there by well, certain it has people been taken the there multiple times, hasn't it? You know, yeah, yeah and, and sometimes not intentionally. Just the fact that Michael Keaton was casted as Batman is ridiculous enough. Oh, no, he don't rag on Keaton. Oh, uh, Mr. Keaton. Mom, come on, Greg. No, Greg. no, no, no. <laughs> That's the thing. This Keaton, is a, but think Keaton about is it. the best Batman, I'm Think sorry. about it. If you're mm-hmm. Michael Keaton and you want to scare the shit out of people, you have to dress up. That's the point. You can't, you know, he is not going to intimidate anyone. Well, he couldn't just show him his hairline and just be done with it? <laughs> yeah, oh. Just take his wig off and go, like, look at it. <laughs> look, it's my scalping plants. Look at them. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, John, let's not talk about WoW this week since you've got some weeks. <laughs> oh. Yeah, actually, uh, there was a crazy sale on Amazon once again. God bless Amazon. Uh, Matt, yeah. Both Mad World and House of the, uh, House of the Dead Overkill. Uh, were on there for $13 a piece. Sega wept. And uh, I would like to thank them for publishing these games so that they could drop in price so precipitously. And I could pick them t- up. It only took nearly a year. Hey, patience. Mm-hmm. I actually, I played all the way through uh, House of the Dead Overkill. Yeah. And which is an entire three hours, by the way. Yeah. yeah. Is that a rare achievement for you these days? It is, it is. I had to do it. So, you know, actually it was Johnny's urging. Johnny's <laughs> like, because I was sick today at home from uh, from work. So I really was just kind of sitting around. 
And so Johnny's like, you know, you could play through one of those because that Mad World, you could play through those games. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, all right, yeah, well, because not not even really knowing that House of the Dead Overkill was actually that short. House yeah. of the Dead Overkill will literally be done by the time this podcast is over. <laughs> If you start right now. <laughs> a lot of people say gratuitous wearing has a very similar effect to chicken soup. So, <laughs> <you know> it. <laughs> it certainly made me feel better. But yeah, I mean, that was a, it's, a, it's a really well done game. I really enjoyed it. In terms of, I think uh, what I really appreciated about it is that they took kind of like the, the well-worn House of the Dead concept and really kind of went somewhere kind of cooler with it. Um, yeah. The characters are just ridiculous archetypes. You know, or stereotypes. Actually, everything is very tongue in cheek. Well, mate, what's his name? Like, you're, you're Washington. Isaac that. Washington. Be- better or worse than Rico? Um, he's better than Rico for sure. He's oh, better. Okay. He's better because he's not trying to be serious. He is written. I mean, he cannot say th- three words without uttering the f word. But that's on purpose. <laughs> oh. it's, it's on purpose. It's not trying to be. Yeah. Oh, they so actually cast member of this show. Like they actually have jokes about how much he swears. Yeah, that's part of the script. But uh, there, actually, it's one of the few games I must say that where some of the the writing in it and kind of the the banter back and forth between those two characters actually made me laugh out loud. Just because, like, especially right at the start, where well, this is actually in the intro, where they're like Isaac Washington. He's so bad, he will blow your balls off. And then it cuts to a scene with him shooting at some mutants, and he's like, "I will blow your." Balls off! It's just so Jesus ridiculous. Christ. So hilarious, but yes. Oh, that's awful. It's not exactly the Cohen brothers, but it, it is. <laughs> it's funny in how over the top it is. I mean, you know, it's you have to be able to to laugh at the excess because that's what's funny about it. You know, and they, I mean, they actually, the game does. I mean, it doesn't even come close to taking itself seriously. In fact, at the end of the game, they pretty much make fun of the game itself. So, just with some of the stuff <laughs> they say at the very end. The ending's pretty good, and the music, man. Yeah, I mean that's they. I mean it's it's like the whole package across the board. I mean, not only did they set the whole thing up like some grindhouse picture, and they did that really well, but also they have the the entire like soundtrack that sounds like it's ripped straight from like a Quentin uh, Tarantino film. Um, yeah. Just I mean, some of the, in terms of in terms of gameplay, obviously you know House of the Dead is you know you pretty much know what you're going to expect there, but a house with dead in it. Bear in mind, this is probably. I have not played a House of the Dead game for a long, long time since probably like House of the Dead 2 in the arcades. Um, but, you know, I liked being able to like, you know, slow down time. That was really cool. Shooting the golden brains and trying to collect them is also really cool. Yeah, those are fun to get. Yeah, but t- tough to get, though. I mean, a lot of times what they'll do is they'll just show it to you just for like a, a flash. You almost have to memorize where they are. Mm-hmm. Like if you don't know that they're there, if you don't know that what the camera movement's going to be, you're not going to get it. You're just going to completely miss it. But yeah, yeah, it was really good. I mean, for 13 bucks, you you absolutely cannot go wrong. I haven't played through the director's cut. I'm not too sure exactly what that adds. It's not, not much. It, <laughs> it adds a few extra brains, basically. Okay. That's pretty much it. It's I was disappointed by the director's cut, but it's a fun game. Yeah, it's a really fun game. Uh, so I'll go up next, and I've been playing a, a brand new WiiWare game called Chronos Twins DX, and Chronos Twins was the story goes as I've I've been reading up on it because it's quite an interesting game. But apparently, Chronos Twins started life as a GBA game. It was one of those orbital media things that John Lindemann has t- talked about numerous times. 
it started on GBA, but then the DS was announced, and so the, like a lot of other Orbital Media games, they shuffled it over to DS, and I don't think it ever actually came out on I Game th- Boy I think Advance. it might have come out in Europe. It came, Well, it came out on DS in, in Europe. Europe, yeah, but, it, but then it never came yeah. out any, in any form in North America, is that right? That's, that's correct, until now on WiiWare. So this was a GBA game, then it was, it actually makes a lot of sense as a DS game, as I'll explain in a sec. And now it's on WiiWare, and finally people in the in uh, North America can play this. So Cronus Twins and, and the DX, you know, it's the deluxe version. They did remake a lot of the graphics. Um, I think there might be a couple extra levels. I'm not sure because I've never played the original version. But um, it's it's a very interesting game. So Cronus Twins is basically a platformer, a 2D platformer. It's very Mega Man esque, I would say. But the screen is split horizontally. And you, so you're controlling the same guy on the top and the bottom. And, and the idea is that he's existing simultaneously in the past and the present. And when you move and when you jump, he jumps on, in both frames, in both time periods. You can shoot independently. So, you know, sometimes you have to kind of think about, well, you have to prioritize enemies and things like that. Um, so the idea is that you're controlling this character in two different levels, basically, simultaneously. And the levels are, for the most part, very similar, but there are always little differences here and there. There's a platform on this one where there's not in the other, or there are enemies here, or there are different kinds of enemies, different kind of hazards, some lasers you have to dodge. Um, and it gets really interesting because not only are you, you know, you're switching where your eyes are looking at, you're always changing your focus from the top to the bottom or vice versa to try to figure out what you have to deal with next, but the way that the two interact is is surprising in a lot of cases. So uh, sometimes moving platforms or uh, one of the more interesting things is that if your character's standing on solid ground or a platform in one frame, he'll be safe in the other even if he's standing on thin air. So you'll see these kind of waves coming out from his feet like he's just standing in the air because he's safe in the other time period. Mm. So a lot of times what they'll do is they'll space platforms out so that it looks like if you just look at one frame, it looks like it would be impossible for you to get over there. And if you look at the other, that one looks impossible too. But when you combine them, you realize there is a safe passage. You just have to you just have to keep flipping your focus back and forth between the top and the bottom. <laughs> so the, there are some very interesting platform challenges, and then you get into moving platforms and conveyor belts, and you're dodging all kinds of hazards. And it can be a little bit a little bit of a brain twister sometimes, and sometimes I just have to like step away from it for a little while because it's it's almost too much to process. But it's really interesting because you know without this mechanic, it would be a very straightforward action game. But when you add this and you add these interactions and everything, and the fact that you have to really think about what's going on, you have to pay attention a lot more than you would in say a Mega Man game. It turns it into a very cerebral experience, which is not really what I was expecting. So it ends up being, I guess maybe the best thing I could compare it to is Henry Hatsworth in that, hmm. you know, it, it is in some ways a big, dumb action platformer. You know, you're just jumping around <laughs> and hitting dudes with your cane. But there's this other layer on it. There's all the strategy that goes with that. And so you end up having to play it very differently from a lot of similar games. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not, I don't know, there's no particular reason for it, but it's the kind of thing, as you said, in terms of it being a DS game that I kind of expected would be more on the DS. You know, these things that use the two screens a lot more right, um, right. than they have done. I mean, there's a few examples I could think of that have done maybe things a bit 
similarly like there's parts of DK Jungle Climber where like the bottom screen is is, is like a mirror of the top screen but the platforms are actually in different parts so you you got to discern which ones are like trick pegs and they're like if you if you grab the trick peg like the the, the mirror shatters and you go back to where you were or whatever so it's a huh. bit of a similar sort of thing where you've got to pay attention to both and figure out the path from there and then there was a boss in Yoshi's Island DS where you had to look at the bottom screen like a, a mirror was sort of progressively getting shattered um, and a few other things like this but really not a whole lot of that kind of dual screen utilisation in that way because it come out on the DS which... there's a really good boss in Phantom Hourglass where you have to look at the bottom screen to or you have to look at yeah, anyway one yeah. of them is a reflection kind of or... yeah one of them is like yes. the POV right you're seeing it from the boss's perspective that's awesome that's very very high concept stuff. That's really what I thought the DS would be used for when they first announced the system. But Cronus Twins DX, uh, I think it works really well on WiiWare, even though, you know, it is probably best suited to DS. It does play very, very well on WiiWare. It doesn't look that great. And I think part of the problem is that the presentation has to be split into two. So you end up with kind of a tiny character. There's not a lot of detail in the environments just because they have to squeeze a lot of stuff onto the screen. I mean, could, could there be so, so it's a horizontal split, right? Yeah, yeah. So it, could there be an argument for making it like a, a vertical split if you're playing on 60 by 9 TV? I, I don't, th- I think it would be more difficult to quickly compare the differences right. between the two because there, there is an element of that where you know, those puzzles you could get them in the newspaper or on a touchscreen thing at a bar where you're just trying to spot the differences in the photo mm-hmm. sure chronos twins is there's like a, a little bit of that except you're doing it in real time as you play this challenging 2d platformer kind of thing right yeah and I, and i should note there's also a pretty cool mechanic where and you you get this a little ways into the game where you slap the right joystick on the classic controller or do something on the wii remote and uh, you can split. So what what it'll do is it'll freeze time in one of the frames, and you control the other one independently. And it lets you go over and move some platforms, or basically hit a switch, uh. basically do something that will allow you, when you reconnect, when you sync back up, to allow you to proceed. So you'll well, come up cool. to some obstacle that exists in one frame but not the other, and it's like, okay, now I know I need to split, I need to explore forward a little bit on this one and find out how I can open up the pathway so that I can move both of them together forward and complete the level. And does that only work one way in terms of like you are moving stuff in the past and then it affects the future? No, it goes, you know, one of the funny things about the game is that I keep forgetting which frame is supposed to be the past and which one's the present. It really doesn't matter. It may as well be like parallel dimensions or something. It doesn't actually use like a linear time kind of... uh, mechanic not that i can tell maybe there's some logic to how the puzzles are constructed but you don't really need to know which is which but it it is a very very interesting game it's challenging both mentally and you know in terms of reflexes and as i mean as an action game it's challenging but when you add this other layer of trying to think about what's going on all the time it becomes really something unique i think and uh and i would definitely recommend it to anybody who likes that kind of you know a 2d platformer with a twist it's very good i'd consider it seems to be a pretty good amount of content for 10 bucks on WiiWare. uh it's about what you would expect i think for a WiiWare game it's probably short as a ds game but for WiiWare, i think it's probably a good fit and as i said it is it's pretty challenging but there are you can there's a setting for difficulty if it's too hard i think you can mess with that 
So, yeah, I, I really recommend it. I think it's pretty cool. The other things I've been playing this week, I kind of want to talk about this as a pair, is that uh, I, I borrowed a copy of Eco for PlayStation 2 from Andy Gergen. Um, Eco is very rare these days. It's very hard to find a copy of it. And I just was mentioning this, and I guess Andy heard me on the podcast or saw an email or something about it and uh, said, hey, I've got a copy. You can borrow it if you want. And I said, yeah, that would be great. So Andy mailed it to me, and I've been playing that a little bit. I've also been catching up on Uncharted 2, which I bought back in like October, something <laughs> like that, and just really had not not even put it in until after New Year's. So I finally stuck that in the PS3, and uh, I wish I could play both these on the same console. That's that's a different oh. conversation, I guess. Yeah, well, so, so do I, because I don't actually have a PlayStation 2 at all. Right. So, yeah, mm-hmm. An Eco certainly is such a lauded game. I would uh, be very eager to try. It's, uh, you know, and Uncharted 2 also quite esteemed, although more recently... Yeah, they they both they're very different games in a lot of ways, but I thought it would be more interesting to talk about the similarities, the things they have in common because I'm I'm finding a lot of very striking comparisons between Eco and Uncharted 2. Um primarily in well, first of all, the way your characters climb around the environments, there's a lot of scrambling up ledges and swinging from ropes and things like that. Johnny, I mean, I've never played Eco at all. Could you just explain to me exactly what it is? Yeah, well, I'll try. I'll try. Eco is a quite an unusual game. Um, so it's sort of it, it, it's Zelda esque, I would say, except um, really it's it's a lot simpler than Zelda. So the idea is that you're moving around these 3D environments. You're generally just trying to get from point A to point B, and usually there's a little bit of a puzzle you have to solve, or you have to do some not exactly platforming because it's not really twitch based, but you have to figure out how to move around the environment, how to climb around on things. Yeah, to it's get... basically like a big climbing game. Yeah. You have, you have, you're basically from one place and you usually get up mm-hmm. you, yeah. or across some sort of gap to another yeah. place while dragging uh, a, a... Yorda, Yorda. Yeah, the twist is that you have this girl. She's this kind of ghostly, pale girl. She doesn't speak your language. She's very sympathetic. You're not really sure why you need to rescue her, but it just seems like the right thing to do. Yeah. So you're trying. She, you're, she is in need of assistance. Yes, you're both trying to escape this castle, and she's very, very helpless. So the, these monsters are trying to attack her. So you're trying to defend her from these shadow demon things, and then you're also trying to like drag her across the environment. She's not as agile as your character Eco. So a lot of times you have to climb up some ledges or or jump across a pit, and then either pull her across physically or go and solve a little bit of a puzzle to to make a bridge appear or you know to do something that will allow her to get across so you're kind of cooperating with her but she's not really helping you you're taking care of her it's interesting it it sounds like a game concept that would either be really really good or completely fall on its face no I, it it does work very well it has some annoyances mainly and it, you know team eco the developers they also made shadow of the colossus which mm-hmm. is a game i really like a lot yeah, and they're sure making I. a new a ps3 game now called last guardian and one of the things that they're known for is that they have some problems with controls their controls tend to be not that responsive or actions are kind of laid around the controller you know the button assignments are kind of odd Mm-hmm. So you jump with triangle and you climb down with X. It's 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 a bit weird the control layout and and definitely Eco is a little rougher in that area than Shadow of the Colossus. But um, 
Yeah, it, I mean, the game does work very, very well for the most part. And, and what struck me in terms of comparing it to Uncharted 2 is that, you know, there is a lot of climbing, there's a lot of, uh, you know, pulling yourself up these ledges, the animations, you can tell there's a pretty direct lineage from Eco to Uncharted t- and, and Uncharted 2 as well. Um, in terms of how these characters move and how to show them in a realistic way. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, in a sense, Eco was a 2001 game. And the way your character moves is, for you know some of the minor technical faults in terms of clipping, etc., it's very, very impressive how realistic your characters, the characters move around, how they interact with each other. And that's the other thing is that I, I just started thinking about it. I mean, Eco is very much, you know, you could maybe even compare it to spirit tracks a little bit, but you're kind of controlling two characters. You know, mm-hmm. you're not really controlling Yorda, but you're trying to get her through these environments. So she really depends on you. Yeah, I, I remember when Wind Waker came out, and I think there the was discussion about the latter two dungeons where you've got the, the uh, Mac, was it Makar and uh, Medley or whatever, whatever the names are, the the little Korok guy and the bird girl in those two dungeons. Oh, yeah. And then the, the, maybe it was influenced by, I mean, how similar... Are those dungeons where you use where you're sort of cooperating with those sage? I'd characters. say very much, very much. Except those characters are probably a little more useful. The, in, yeah, in I terms remember how they're not being that useless. <laughs> right. Yeah, Yorda is very frail. She can't really do anything for herself. The best she can do is run towards you when you call for her. That's about it. So you just have to play around that. And you know, I mean, the game's very ambitious. I'm sure if they had to do it over again, they might they might make her a little bit more capable. But uh, for for when the game was made, it's it's pretty impressive the, the kinds of things that it does with these these interacting characters and the emotional development that happens between you and the characters because you're taking care of her, you're so responsible for her. It's almost like you know being a parent or something. Like you really have to take care of her because she can't really do anything for herself. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the lineage to Uncharted Two is interesting to me because I realized playing Uncharted Two that it's very rare that you are controlling Nathan Drake by himself. He almost always has another character with him, sometimes more than one, but usually just one other character. And the, the AI characters in Uncharted, they, you know, they shoot for themselves. They don't, they usually don't kill enemies, but they can occasionally. They can do some platforming for themselves, but there are times when you have to cooperate. You have to boost them up to a ladder or they have to help you get across something or you catch them. There's actually a scene that I just saw when I was playing Uncharted 2 where Nathan gets across a long gap and then the other character runs at him and jumps over a pit and Nathan grabs her and then pulls her up the side because she couldn't jump as far as him. And that is exactly taken out of Ego. Exactly. So... There, it's really interesting the way you have two characters on screen and the way you interact with each other and, and how you build a platformer, essentially, around having these two characters navigating these 3D environments. Yeah, I'd love to ask them and see, because I'm sure if you ask them, that they would say that that was a direct influence on them. Right. Because that's a very influential game. Yeah, Eco, I mean, it, it is making me respect Eco a lot. Even though I have some issues with how it's implemented, it is obvious that it's a very ambitious game, very influential on a lot of things that came after it. And, you know, with Eco and Shadow of, Shadow of the Colossus, you can see a lot of influence they've had over Zelda games. Mm-hmm. But I think less often you hear the influence they've had over other things like action games. You know, third-person shooter. Bas- Uncharted's basically a third-person shooter. Yep. And yet you can still see massive levels of influence from a game like Eco, which is a very, it's kind of an art house kind of a game, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a game that not a whole lot of people ever played. 
but it's just it's fascinating to me to see the level of influence it's had. Anyway, that's all I've got on those two. Uh, James, wrap it up, please. Yes. So, finished off Crystal Bears. Actually, James, before you go on, have you beat the last uh, Remnant yet? Fuck you, John. No. <laughs> that's that's answering it for me. By which he means, has it come back yet? And the answer is no, it hasn't. <laughs> Damn. Oh. I was seriously just asking because it's been forever since you sent off your 360, right? Yeah, I sent, I sent it off December 5th. I called, I called about it last week, actually. And uh, I was told, he's like, oh, well, you know, it usually takes two to three. I'm like, yeah, look at the date on there. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't even remember what the last remnant was about. I mean, it's it's awesome. <laughs> I'm going to have to restart the game. Like a good novel, <laughs> it sticks with you. Uh, James, how's the ending of Crystal Bearers? Eight hours from the start of it. Oh. <laughs> good to know the three plus years went to. <laughs> <laughs> I really do wonder where I all the. I think IGN went. said 20 hours, so. 20 hours, my ass! Been. I beat it in three and a half days! <laughs> Depends how long you play that butt bumping game for. I play I, I played it for all of ten seconds, Greg. They probably played it for ten hours. I was like, I am disgusted at myself for playing They're this game. For the IGN lads mag channel, play it for whatever the hell I am. <laughs> well, you can't spell ignorant <laughs> slut without IGN. <laughs> they used to have those T-shirts. I mean, I yeah. I almost had one. So are you you're kind of down on Crystal Bears, I guess? And no, no. I I what happened is I played it. There's I finished it off Thursday night after the national championship game uh-huh. because Friday I turned around to play it and I'm like, oh, it's done. And I've <laughs> never done that on a game before. I've never turned around and go, oh, I'm going to go play this game. Fuck. Oh, that's right. I did finish it. <laughs> I was like, that's... It was that unnoteworthy. Well, I think I think it's good that I wanted to, tr- to go back and play it and then I just kept thinking to myself, why is it over? I mean, is there any kind of your know, peripheral content that you can get into? Or, you know, sort of uh, there's, there's like a, like a, achievements to chase down. You know, little ways you can interact with the environment and you get like awards for, but they don't give you any tangible results besides like a little check mark on a board. There's, there, there are some, some generalized side quests that aren't particularly compelling. But I mean, the game is so heavily leveraged on its story. It's borderline interactive novel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hideo Kojima would be proud. <laughs> from Square Enix, I would I would not expect that at all. He would make it a bit longer, though, wouldn't it? Even if it were all cutscenes, he would have added some more some more butt bouncing. Yes, yeah, that probably it, it would be in. much more abstract too. I'm sure. So James, <laughs> much more interesting I, character I'm, names. I'm picking up that maybe one of the problems with Crystal Bears is that your character doesn't really develop. And I'm not talking in story terms. I'm talking about what your character can do or how powerful he is, or no, he you know, doesn't. Like the gameplay really. options or things like that. I mean, because in Final Fantasy in a normal Final Fantasy game, you would do side missions in order to maybe learn some background on a character, but also to pick up an awesome new weapon or to learn a rare spell or summon. Whereas right. in Crystal Bears, those things don't apply. No. So why would you do a side mission? What, what you can get is you can get accessories. They're like these pendants and earrings that you can't see, thankfully, because they look horrifying. That that increase your stats in some way or another, and stats are like how far you can throw things, how how long your reach is, because the effects of your ability to manipulate are affected by distance, how much okay. damage you do by grabbing something and throwing it, things like that. But these aren't permanent upgrades; they're just trinkets that give you more or less depending on what they are. Mm-hmm. And you can collect crap to go make this stuff, or you can go buy it from merchants that are spread around. So there is a bit of customization, but you're saying it's not that compelling? 
I, I didn't need to, to up my stats in any any material way in order to complete the game. Yeah. Um, but what one thing I found is that our review, uh, which Neil wrote, I disagree with it, but I would give it the same end score because he rates the game on basically its generalized combat, which they refer to as the campaigns. Whereas I rate the game based on its boss battles, which if you remember, I said there weren't nearly enough of. And there are like four in the whole game. But they're good. Right? They're really good. Now, what I've seen is that a lot of uh, outlets have written that they couldn't complete a boss or that the bosses are just blatantly hard. I don't know what boss they're talking about. They're talking about the final boss of the game who has an attack that basically you can't dodge. <laughs> the, the thing is, what the game asks you to do is rip off his armor piece by piece and then a story scene kicks in because that happens all the time, at which point the boss battle moves on. But what the game isn't asking you to do is it isn't asking you to manually pull them off. There are things in the background on the boss you can rip off of him and use as a weapon to expedite the process. So it's just a race against time in terms of you have to do it quickly enough so that this attack you can't dodge doesn't kill you. Essentially, you but it's right. it's... The real trick is to observe that I can grab his weapons that he's using and use them on him. Mm -hmm. And it seems like a lot of people who have played this game haven't made that connection. I've just been trying to manually brute force the boss battle. But in reality, the fights in this game, and even, even some of the smaller scale fights, require you to use a certain amount of puzzle solving to make the battle more quick or, or more effective. Which I kind of liked. Because it's it's not just the same fight every time. I mean, the one that gets talked about a lot is the two beetles you can throw at each other and turn them into a bowling ball. But there are tons of enemies like that where you can like manipulate. There's a security robots that you can manipulate a switch on the back of them and make them slam into each other, or you can pull the guns off of them and fire them at each other. But you have to actually experiment with these things to find them sometimes. And I think that some people just kind of rushed through the game and didn't really enjoy it that way. It happens. But do you really need to experiment like that, really? Like, uh, in in the case of that last boss battle, yeah, you're fucked if you don't. Yeah. Because he will kill. And I I died four or five times before I realized I could rip could rip these things off of him and sort of use them against him. Mm -hmm. And once I did that, it just became you know a matter of not much difficulty. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like everybody else never really had to think all that much playing the game until the final boss. Yeah, and and the game kind of works you up. To, there are boss battles that are. There are boss battles. I was going to talk about them like there's a lot. There's four. There's <laughs> All the boss battles give you the opportunity to do things like this. Um, the first boss battle actually forces you to do it, but it actually holds your hand. But then every boss battle from there on, you can just kind of do it on your own. You don't have to actually do it. So I think people who don't really think about it, just right, I just got to hit this guy a bunch of times. They sort of lost some of the enjoyment of the game. All right. Um, I will say that now that I've completed the story, it does actually have a surprisingly solid story, considering it's only eight hours long. <laughs> but considering about four hours of those as movies, it's probably not that surprising. <laughs> it is still a weird mix of gameplay, though. I mean, it really is. Yeah. The other game that I've been playing is I finally went ahead and bought Spirit Tracks. And uh, speaking of short games, holy crap. I, I bought it Monday. And I am on the verge of beating it today, and I actually worked this week. 
Yeah, well, we know how you play games, James. Yeah, it's not that short. It's, it's, I think it's probably, in terms of the core content of the dungeons, it's probably a bit longer than Phantom Hourglass. Yeah. I guess, I guess. Maybe it's just because I'm used to the playing style of Phantom Hourglass, I'm able to breeze through it faster. Yeah, you kind of pick up and get on with it a little more, I think, yeah. Yeah, you kind of, you've kind of learned the tricks that they, they are employing here, because it's the same. Yes, yeah, some of them are the same. <laughs> yeah, the, the stupid draw the design on the door thing and stuff like that. Um, any of the combat, you kind of have an idea of how it works. I like that they decided to integrate some of the items they chose, because I do know that these games use a very limited selection of items compared to other Zelda games. Yeah. So I like that they chose at least one or two more eclectic ones, like uh, it's the, it's a whip in this game, but it essentially functions the same as the... Um, the hook shot or the, the, the grapple. The, the grapple, sort of grappling yeah. hook. Yeah, I much, I much prefer the grapple to the hook shot in, in Wind Waker just because it was a novelty. Well, the coolest thing about the grappling hook in Phantom Hourglass is that you could use it to tie a rope between platforms and then walk on it, which is not replicated with the whip. Yeah, that is kind of weird. I, I guess well, instead what they, they've done, it they've made it more of an offensive weapon than it was in the other game. Yes. Definitely. It's very useful for, for taking things out. And in fact, it, it going back to, to uh, Crystal Bearers, you can use it to interact with enemies in ways to sort of disarm them. Yeah, yeah. Which, which those stupid crabs with the rock hands that were always get in your way. I was very much happy to be able to disarm them and then beat them to death with their own fucking rock. Yeah, one thing I like about the whip is that you can take pieces from enemies, usually a boss, and then actually throw it back at the boss. Yeah. That's a pretty cool thing that you never really did with the hook shot or the grappling hook. Mm -mm. I kind of hate how they introduced you can do that with the stupid sword throwing puzzles in uh, the dungeon. Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah. That was really obnoxious, but I don't know. I mean, I'm enjoying the game, but I don't think I'm going to really remember it a few years down the road. Yeah. I, w- I will say that both this game and its predecessor are, are very good games, and anyone who says otherwise is lacks a soul. Pretty bold statement. <laughs> well, it's also true. Uh, I, no, I, I mean, I agree. I think they're both very good games, but I have high standards for this franchise, and there are areas in which I think they fall a bit short of my high standards. So I think I think that given what they work with, it was it, the decisions they made in Phantom Hourglass in Spirit Tracks. They made no decisions essentially, except to replace the boat with a train. <laughs> yeah. But it, it... except to go back to the bank. Dude, I think replacing the, the what they've replaced the Temple of the Ocean King with is a pretty big deal. Yeah, well, I mean that wasn't. I don't even feel like that was a decision that had to be done. Yeah, I know it's not a you know bold decision. No, but, the, the, but you know they they did it and I think they did it well. It's a, yeah, like, more content, more different kinds of content. Yeah, and, you know, that that was key. I never had an, as big an issue with the Ocean King as other people had, but it's not like they made the. I'm glad they made the changes they did, but I mean it's like they made the bold decision. You know what? We're gonna make the whole dungeon require you to replay it. No shortcuts this time. <laughs> Because that would have been the kind of game design that I would have implemented, because I think uh, that would have really endeared you to the fans. I'm so glad you don't make games. Yeah, seriously, James, <laughs> just stay away from that profession. I think I think James is actually like a, a covert creator of roguelikes. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he's that's kind of like his alter ego. He's a competitor of Chunsoft, so obviously he talks down their products all the time. Exactly. <laughs> yep. In the, in the dead of night... James is tinkering away in his little lab. Just thinking, go explorers of the sky. He's got some really good ideas. I have to pinch those. I, I, I shall call it Dungeon of Mystery. <laughs> I'm not sure there's a single idea in Explorer of the Skies. <laughs> you know? 
All right. Well, we've uh, we've beaten spirit tracks into the ground enough, and I've certainly done my part. So let's take a break. And when we come back from the break, we're going to kick off a special new feature. Here's a quick look at the best original content at our website, now playing at NintendoWorldReport.com. This week, we had a whole bunch of reviews. First off, we have our own James Jones review James Cameron's Avatar colon the game for Wii. And, uh, heavy, on, heavy on the colon. John picked out this choice morsel quote from the review in which James says, there are more subordinate descriptors in the title than there are good elements in the game. <laughs> I'm sure James has nothing else to say about it. And in another game, I'm sure he said everything you could possibly say about it at this point. Skycrawlers, colon, Innocent Aces for the Wii also. And James uh, said in his review, quote, the wait was definitely worth it. Pedro says about Just Dance for Wii, quote, it has some good ideas, but also some flaws that keep it from being truly amazing. Including its title. He also reviewed Vegas Party for Wii, which he says, quote, a trip to the actual city is recommended instead. And actually, you can get to Vegas pretty cheap. I don't know if it's as cheap as this game, but... <laughs> I doubt it. The ever-prolific Zach Miller's got a couple of reviews this week. We've got Carmen Rider Dragonite for DS, and Zach's other review is for Castlevania The Adventure Rebirth, uh, which he says is definitely one of the best WiiWare titles yet. hey And finally, Neil Ronahan has <laughs> Dragon Ball Z <laughs> Attack of the Scions. <laughs> what the hell? We're going to get so many letters about <laughs> oh, pronunciation. God. This is possibly the best quote of them all. A very vanilla RPG. <laughs> A very vanilla quote from a very vanilla RPG. All right, uh, and uh, the one other new thing we're trying that I'm sure will crash and burn, hot topics from the Talkback forums. Metroid Prime Trilogy no longer being distributed. Uh, Netflix streaming uh, coming to the Wii this spring. And also, Mad World director also interested in a sequel. Uh-huh, it's nice to want things. So, all right, that's uh, kind of a, a quick overlook at what's happening on Nintendo World Report this week. And if you want to learn more, check out NintendoWorldReport.com. Welcome back, and uh, to kick off the second segment here, before we get into mail, uh, we're going to start our Games of the Decade feature, and uh, I guess this is the first time we've really talked about it on the air, so I'll let Greg explain some of the background about what's going on with this. Yeah, well, obviously the decade uh, just recently came to an end, and uh, for a little while at the end there, we started to talk about you know, maybe doing something uh, to look back at uh, the, the best games that came out over that 10 years, and we did some of the groundwork to some extent when we look back at the 10 years of the website, Nintendo World Report, which was a lot of fun back, was it March uh, last year now? Right, right. Correct. Yeah, we're, it's, we're almost up to year 11 now. That's, mm -hmm. that's scary. That's, that year's gone quick. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, hmm. but, so we started talking about what we could do to look back at the best games of the decade. And so what we ended up doing is, is, is sort of a, bringing the, all of the staff in and say, what's your choices for the games of the decade? Get them to submit to us 
uh, an audio of them making the case for why their game uh, could be the best game of the decade and that what we're going to do now is play some of those audio clips uh, for you in this episode we'll play more in subsequent episodes until we get to a point where we're going to kind of between the four of us hash it out whittle down that big list to a smaller list that we will then uh, put up a poll on the website so that our listeners and the people on the forums can decide what actually is the game of the decade for Nintendo platforms so that's going to include uh, the Game Boy Color, DS, the GBA, Wii, GameCube, the whole the whole Nintendo sort of a spectrum over that time. So uh, with some of the categories, some of the criteria that we're looking at is you know obviously general excellence and legacy influence on subsequent games all those kinds of things but it's pretty all-encompassing kind of debate and we'll uh, let uh, our staff members make the case for themselves that's right so this is a chance for people on the staff uh, some of whom you you haven't really heard on the podcast very often or maybe never it's a kind of a chance for them to champion their one of their favorite games of the past 10 years and make the case and and really argue and try to convince us as well as you the listeners that the game they've selected really deserves to be on kind of the short list for the voting. Um, so it's going to be fun. And the first clip that, that James has queued up for us here is going to be from TYP talking about Melee, I think. Super Smash Bros. Melee is easily the best game of the decade. Just look at the sales. It was often considered Nintendo's Halo. It sold 7.06 million copies during its lifetime, according to Nintendo. That's just under one copy for every three GameCubes around the world. And it had long, long, long legs. We're talking GameCube's evergreen title here. It continued to sell at full price for over a year, at which point it went to a $30 Player's Choice title. And it continued to be played once people bought it. There were tons of unlockable characters and levels, and it just seemed like it always came up during parties. Uh, tournaments started adopting it as a, as a staple, and for uh, our website, Planet GameCube, you know, it was played every year at E3, or Brawl, once Brawl came out. Let's face it, Melee is just plain fun. Whether you're talking about serious players who want everything turned off, or, or casual players who want all the zany items and, and the chaos that comes with it, it's it just fun. And it really encapsulates Nintendo's entire attitude towards the decade of the 2000s. There's focus on awesome local multiplayer. And this game highlighted all of Nintendo's characters and franchises, many of which came later in the GameCube's life. It was our first introduction to franchises outside of Japan, such as Animal Crossing and Fire Emblem, and it highlighted lots of Nintendo's characters and franchises, many of which came out in a big way later in GameCube's life. Melee also demonstrates Nintendo's tendency to riff or otherwise veer from the conventional gaming industry wisdom. Uh, this is a fighting game, but it really threw out all of the conventions of the fighting game genre. We saw this later with games like Metroid Prime, which was sort of a first-person shooter, but it was really a first-person adventure. And of course, this decade we saw the release of Wii, which was a complete shift in, in the paradigm for the video game industry. My hat's off to you, Malay. You are the best game of the decade, and a game that people will continue to play for many years. Alright, next up we have Pikmin from Carmine Red, Chiron. How's this for a game of the decade? It's about gardening. Of course, I'm talking about Pikmin. This ingenious mix of the RTS action and puzzle genres won critical acclaim, a sequel, and a place in Nintendo fandom. 
Games have always been striving for bigger and better, but Pikmin's inspiration came from the small scale of the backyard. This new perspective meant you had to bridge small ponds, fight off bird-like creatures, dip under tree roots, and fell flowers for resources. Of course you needed to use the Pikmin to progress, but each time one drowned, was eaten, squashed, blown apart, incinerated, or otherwise done in, that was a Pikmin you had brought into the world, and who only died because you'd made some sort of stupid mistake. There was a strong subtext that, in the dangerous world of Pikmin, you were the closest thing they had to a parent. That bond is one of the things that makes Pikmin so unique and timeless. As much as they're helping you solve puzzles and battle enemies, you're guiding them and protecting them against predators. Even now, years after the game's launch, Pikmin's new Play Control remake on the Wii demonstrates the game's lasting appeal and style. But one thing may be lost in time though. Pikmin seemed designed around and intended for the GameCube controller. So much so that the controller could seem to melt away from the player's awareness during gameplay. A quality that only the best Nintendo games possess. In 2001, against Space Marines and Stolen Cars, Nintendo released Pikmin, a game based on gardening. If you think about it, that about sets the tone for the rest of the decade. Well, next up, uh, we have Zach Miller, who's going to expound upon the virtues of one of the best multi-platform games, certainly of the decade, Beyond Good and Evil. Beyond Good and Evil, a multi-platform Ubisoft game from the last console generation, is without a doubt my favorite third-party console game released in the last decade. This 2003 adventure capitalized on several Ubisoft strengths. The ability to tell a compelling story, make players emotionally connect with the characters, and successfully mix different game genres. In BG&E's case, you've got mostly Zelda action, mixed with overworld vehicle traversal, stealth areas, AI partners, and photojournalism. Beyond Good and Evil features an intriguing plot and wonderful art direction. Fan and critical response is overwhelmingly positive. Metacritic scores hover between 180, with their own Mike's Glens doling out an impressive 9. Sales were generated mainly by word of mouth, which is how I discovered it. Despite its acclaim, however, Beyond Good and Evil was a commercial flop and quickly wound up in the bargain bin. A sequel may or may not be in the works. The game concerns a photojournalist named Jade, who is hired by an underground newspaper to uncover a vast conspiracy between the planet's military force and the invading Dom Z aliens. The relationship between Jade and her uncle Paige make up the story's emotional core, but the game does a wonderful job of setting the grand scope of the alien conspiracy that our heroine uncovers. Beyond Good and Evil was one of the first games to interject a much-needed dose of cinema into the gameplay, be it passive conversation between Jade and her AI partners, now commonplace in games which utilize this mechanic, or interrupting the gameplay with short but emotionally charged cutscenes. The game also succeeds in implementing so many different genres into one package. While each piece of the game feels distinct, the entire experience flows together seamlessly. Its story remains poignant to this day, and the gameplay remains fresh. While definitely an underdog, Beyond Good and Evil does so many things right and delivers on so many levels that it certainly deserves to be one of Nintendo World Report's Games of the Decade. And our final entry of this week is our own James Jones talking about Pokemon Gold and Silver. 
When we do retrospective lists, and in this case it's games of the decade, we often run the risk of neglecting older titles so we can put praise on the more recent titles that are on the top of our heads. Certainly I can't be accused of that because the game I'm going to talk about is 2000's Pokemon Gold and Silver. Gold and Silver may seem like an odd choice since it's an iterative build of the Red and Blue games came out a couple years before it. However, Gold and Silver isn't what we've come to expect from Pokemon franchise, which is basically a roster update. It showed true growth of the gameplay mechanics that Red and Blue had originally put forward. Gold and Silver introduced new features, such as the breeding system, which allowed you to get all the starters without having to restart your game over and over again, but simply having friends who were willing to breed and trade with you. It also introduced the Day-Night, which forced you to either get up early to catch Pokemon or sneak gameplay time in when you're supposed to have gone to bed, and a Days of Week system, which allowed you to do certain events, like the Poke Park events on Sunday, and other events that happened during the course of the week. The most interesting thing the game probably added is the ability to travel between continents. The original game took place on the continent of Kanto, and Gold and Silver took place on the continent of Johto. When you complete the standard 8 gym badges and Elite 4 run that we've gotten used to on Johto, you're given the opportunity to travel back to the original game world of Kanto, see how it's changed in the intervening years, explore those and complete the 8 gyms there, and then when you're finally done with that, challenge the hero of the original game to a battle. If that wasn't enough, Pokemon Gold and Silver added color to the franchise, being built for the Game Boy Color. Gold and Silver isn't just a big update of characters, it really was an attempt to expand the game's core mechanics and offer new ways of play. While the games that followed may have chosen to just quickly get the money of the most lucrative handheld franchise Nintendo holds, Pokemon Gold and Silver really chose ways to expand its gameplay mechanics, and that's why it qualifies as one of the games of the decade. Alright, well those are the first four nominees for Nintendo World Report's Game of the Decade, and I uh, hope you enjoyed listening to those. It's an interesting mix so far, of course, uh, this is a small sampling of the uh, eventual roster that we're going to put forward, but you have two very original games in uh, Pikmin and Beyond Good and Evil, and then two iterative, but highly evolutionary sequels in Super Smash Bros. Melee and Pokemon Gold and Silver. So it, in evaluating these four that we have so far, it's it's kind of interesting to think about, you know, what are the merits of a game that really uh, takes an established franchise or, or an established predecessor and moves it very far forward and does a lot of new things compared to that of a game like Pikmin or Beyond Good and Evil that has to start from zero and create a new world and a new kind of game from scratch. Yeah, I thought it was interesting James mentioned the fact that early games can be overlooked when all four of those are early games, really, aren't they? They, they are. Yeah, but I mean, that was an active effort by us when we did the nomination process. Well, I, th- I also think there's an argument to say that in terms of being influential uh, on a decade, you know, sort of being a defining game of a decade, right. if you want to look at it in that sense, early ones you know, have longer to kind of you see their effect on on the rest of the industry. So uh, I, w- I wouldn't I would discount an early game winning by any means. I mean, I think. TYP sort of makes the obvious but absolutely crucial case that Melee may be, well be the game that a lot of us played the most during the the, uh, the first decade of the new millennium. Yeah, so, uh, that, I, mean, I can't argue with that. You could argue the point that that's more has, says more about the GameCube than it does about the game, though. 
maybe. <laughs> no, I think it's both. I think it's both. No, I, yeah, I mean, uh, I have a deal of Smash Brothers, and that's going to factor pretty highly in my thinking. Well, I like Carmine's uh, uh, advocacy for Pikmin as well. Uh, he makes a pretty awesome case. For yeah, yeah. yeah well, I think very so. And, uh, definitely the idea of you protecting the Pikmin. I remember one time I was on a frantic run to get some ship parts back to the to the base before the end of the day. And uh, I realised at the last minute that all these Pikmin were slowly lugging it back, and there was one of those bulborbs sort of coming completely, uh, uh, you know, undefended towards them to massacre them. And I just threw Olimar in front of them like a desperate offensive lineman, and just kind of <laughs> wiggled his head into just doing that crappy little headbutt, going no, 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 let him get. And, uh, you know, so it, it, it's true. You know, you do feel protective of them, and also protective of the fact that you didn't want to waste that twenty minutes or whatever a day. Last uh, not getting oh, the yeah. to lose the ship part right at the end. <laughs> well, I like the point that he made about uh, it was a classic case of Nintendo zigging when everybody else was zagging. I mean, you know, making a <laughs> game about a garden, playing around in your garden when everybody else was, you know, making space marines. And I thought that was a great point. Instead of bigger and better, it's smaller and better. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I, you know, this was completely unplanned, but I wonder if any of you noticed uh, or, or thought of my previous comments on Eco. Not only would Carmine talking about Pikmin and how you have to kind of be a parent to all these creatures that you've bred and, and are now putting in harm's way, but also with Beyond Good and Evil, where you're interacting with AI characters. And in, in that case, it was a nice evolution because in Beyond Good and Evil, you're actually talking with them and they're real characters, whereas, you know, in Eco, she's more of a, a phantom almost. But, you know, interacting and, and playing with an, a computer-controlled character that's not a complete annoyance you know it's who's... it's amusing because not maybe not amusing is the right word it, it's uh noteworthy because that game came out about the same time the original prince of persia game came out isn't it yes yeah. that's right which which has the same kind of mechanic going on although in this case you're you're the character you're interacting with is far more intelligent than the ones in any of the other games well it, i think in prince of persia which i think you'll probably hear about uh in a future installment of this feature, but in Prince of Persia Sands of Time, the, the character of Farah is one who you interact with on a story basis, but not too much in terms of gameplay. Uh, she's usually on a parallel path with you, so it's not that you're pulling her along or you're following her so much as she's in the environment and she's talking to you, but she's not really playing the game with you. You know what I mean? So it's a it's a little bit of a different dynamic, although a very very valid way to do it. She, if she does, it's it's usually either trying to shoot enemies and usually hitting you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't remember that, but I, I'll take your word on it. Yeah. Um, no, it could be quite a bit of revisionist history with some of these early titles <laughs> up here when we get to the discussion. I, I distinctly Indeed. remember being killed once by an arrow from Farah. Yes. There's nothing wow. like wow. arguing about what actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. We'll have more next week. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited about this feature. It's going to be fun when we get into some of the real debate and some of the real argument about, you know, which game makes the cut and which game doesn't. And speaking of uh, infighting over old games, uh, we have an update on Retroactive. This is, uh, you know, a wonderful feature. We we tried it out last year and had a lot of fun with it. Uh, we want to continue it in 2010. And the first poll, first Retroactive poll of 2010 is going to be another, it's going to, well, it's going to be really our first second chance poll. So these are all uh, nominees that were in the platform-specific Retroactive features from last year and came in second place. Uh, so 
our next poll, which should be up by the time you hear this, go to Nintendo World Report and uh, click on the forums link, and you'll find it there in the podcast discussion. So our next poll is going to be Comics Zone uh, for Genesis, Act Razor for Super Nintendo, Super Mario RPG also for Super Nintendo. There was a tie for second place there. Bonk's Revenge for TurboGrafx-16, and Star Tropics for NES. And I do want to make a note here. If you if you look, go back and look at the poll and you wonder why Choaniki is not in this poll, it's because it uh, it got to my three strikes and you're out rule, which is that if it's in a poll three times and doesn't win, it's ineligible for any future polls. And Choaniki has now lost three times. So well, uh, that one's... Uh, hold on. I mean, as, as director of the site, I can override that rule, right? You should. <laughs> you, should over- privilege, right? you should not just override that rule. You should override the vote outcome. Whatever it takes. I'm not saying we'll never talk about Choaniki ever again on the show, but... That wouldn't be remotely credible if you said that, would it? <laughs> uh, no, I think Bonk's Revenge is actually probably a more interesting game anyway and uh, deserves a chance here in this Choniki will so, rise again. No, you cannot claim no that Bonk's Revenge is a more, quote, interesting title. That is certainly not a valid claim. Anyway, Choniki, not in the poll. All these other games are very fine games. Uh, I really hope you'll go vote. It's uh, at NintendoWorldReport.com. You can find the poll very easily, and uh, that will run for a couple of weeks, and then we'll announce the winner and get cranking on that one. Don't vote for Comic Zone. All right, now, it's time for listener mail. <laughs> if you, if you <laughs> vote for Comic Zone, you are a part of the problem. This is oh, not yes. democracy again. <laughs> this is showocracy. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's the, it's the incumbent endorsing a candidate, that's all. Um, yeah. <laughs> for listener mail, Greg has the first letter. Chris from Chicago writes, I was hoping you guys could discuss your motivation to continue gaming into adulthood. I was listening to last week's podcast and I couldn't help noticing how Johnny sounded a lot like a jaded movie critic while discussing spirit tracks. <laughs> the dull monotone Ouch. he used while describing his experience along with the disgusted exclamation the train is just too slow reminded me of movie critics forced to sit through another summer blockbuster that they could barely stomach. It occurred to me that Johnny seems to prefer slightly more esoteric games, and his motivation to continue gaming is to experience the art of gaming. This led to some introspection, and I realised that I continue gaming to try to recapture the fun of my youth, which is why a game like New Super Mario Bros. Wii resonated with me so much. Please take a few moments to discuss what motivates each of you to continue gaming. I hope I wasn't too monotone. I tried to never be monotone. Uh, I apologize if that happened. There's um, merits for that on technical levels, but you know, that's not really anything <laughs> anyone else would care about. <laughs> Spoken like a podcast editor. Um, yeah, so, I mean, Spirit Tracks, is, it, it's not that it's too mainstream or, or lacking in esotericness, for me it's that it's it's just a game to me it's a very by the numbers game and it just didn't excite me i mean i enjoyed it at times and and you know i i don't regret purchasing it um i also don't regret trading it in for 15 dollars, which means uh net cost for me to play spirit tracks was 10 bucks not bad (laughs) i'm a lot happier about it now um uh, (laughs) monetary validation (laughs) 
I don't dislike Spirit Tracks. It just didn't excite me like some other Zelda games have. And and I mean, I think go into kind of why do you game and, and stuff like that. I mean, I would sure. say it's kind of multifaceted, or at least it is for me. And part of it is the kind of staple diet stuff, which might not excite you, but it nonetheless entertains you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a lot of the virtual console games I play probably fall into that category and some of these franchise games and stuff. And I think that's a really important part of why I keep gaming. But if if you didn't have the other part of the stuff that's new and fresh and exciting, you know, then 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 it might get more stale than it does. You need that sort of complement there. But that doesn't mean that every game has to be new and exciting because you know, this kind of you know, stuff that has been done before, but they do it again. It's still fun. Well, it is to me. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's the cha- challenge definitely, and also connecting with other people that really like games, and just being able to you know share our enjoyment of the hobby. You know, I mean, a lot of times I find you know as I get older, and you know, like your friends move away and everything, you're kind of searching for a like, common ground, like you know maybe a way to keep in touch with somebody that's moved to the other side of the country or something like that. And you know, and something like you know like playing somebody in an online game is a great way to do that. John, do you think you can do that in, even in single player games? It depends. I mean, if people live by you, yeah, you can. And that's kind of what I used to do, you know, in my younger days. Um, you know, like I remember, you know, you would have your friends over and you would play Tech Mobile or something like that. And everybody would sit there in a room and talk smack to each other. But, you know, that's the thing is everybody kind of goes into college and everybody kind of like gets their jobs and whatever. And, you know, everybody just has kind of stuff to do. So it's kind of it becomes harder to get people in the same room. Well, yeah, but obviously I think what Johnny's talking about as well, say, for instance, even if you are you know geographically separated from someone, but if you play a single player game and they've played a single player game, that's something that you could, you know, have a sort of communal experience about. If you like, when you talk about you share your experiences, we're doing it right now. The exa- well, we yeah. have it on an institutionalized basis. Yeah, we, <laughs> we, we don't really count. I have to. Yeah. <laughs> with, social, with social networking and email and everything else, you know, it is possible to enjoy games with each other, even if they're not even multiplayer. That's true. Well, I mean, yeah, true. I, I mean, I, and I think you know, if you are plugged into a lot of people that play games, you know, you may well be more inclined to play a specific game because other people you know have played it because you know you want to. You know, see how your experience matches up with what they've told you. You want to throw in your two cents or whatever. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. that, totally. That, that's part that's of how it. Bioshock sold two million copies. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a mouth. big part of it. I mean, I, I, on the most base level, you know, I mean, it's it, for me, why am I still gaming? I mean, you know, for a start, as, you know, as far as I, as long as I can remember, I've been playing video games, I and mean, I don't remember a time without them. So it'd be very, it'd be very odd for me to say no. Uh, actually, that thing that's always been in your life, uh, I, I don't want it in my life anymore. It seems kind of odd, but the, the the really simple answer is just you know to be entertained, and I mean, it is a you know it's a very separate form of entertainment from others from the point of view that it, it is. Is interactive, um, you know, and it is a, you know, a fast-growing young medium. So we're still, you know, making leaps and bounds and doing things that are new on a much more frequent basis than you see in the other media. So I think it is exciting in that way. Even though I love, you know, dipping, you know, recapturing the youth stuff, I think you know, I'll cop to that. Fine, but mm-hmm. you know, I think I think <laughs> video games is great if you're looking for exciting new stuff because it is evolving so fast. Uh, for, I don't really have to think about it all high-minded. I mean, I, I I play games because it's 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 just what I do. It's just <laughs> it's it's on the slate of things that are things that when I have time to do. I mean, it's kind of like asking someone why do you watch TV. I mean, most TV is trite and generally unwatchable, but I still watch it <laughs> because 
it's there. It's something that's just culturally significant enough that even if it's not creative or, or if it's dull, it's boring, I still watch it because, you know, it's just something that's been ingrained in me through, you know. Socialization, really, so, isn't it? Yeah, I through mean, life. I mean, it's yeah. it's... This is what humans learn now from their parents. It's not. It's not learn how to hunt and kill wild boars. Learn. Learn to tune on the TV and watch that. All right. Well, I feel like. I, I feel like uh, Chris is misinterpreting my taste in gaming a little bit. Uh, no, he, he's he's nailed it. I think we can. I think everybody else here agrees. <laughs> I, I, I think Johnny enjoys plenty of mainstream games. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I I don't feel like I'm all that uh, that I'm going out and seeking art. You know, when I when I choose games or when I really get enthusiastic about games, I I, I feel like I, I have I'm different from Chris and maybe Greg too here, and that I don't really get nostalgic about gaming. And I think part of it is because I have been doing it my entire life. So there there's only been one very brief period when I was a teenager when I stopped playing a whole lot of games for maybe one year, and I still played games, but I just didn't talk about them. I didn't read about them as much, and I didn't play them quite as much. But games have been such a constant in my life since almost to the beginning of my memory that I, I don't really feel like it's something that I did in my youth that now I'm trying to recapture. It's just a continuum. Well, I think you know? what I would separate there is the sense that, that I played a lot of games on the virtual console, including today's uh, selection, that I didn't play when I was young. Right? So, right. so you can't be nostalgic for the game. But in right. terms of the recapturing element, I think what it is, is that these old games, you know, a very specific way that they challenged you, a very specific kind of, of gameplay design in a lot of cases that modern games don't do. And so while you can't, you're not recapturing the experience of playing a specific game in the past, but in terms of the sense of accomplishment and overcoming something that isn't as prevalent in today's game, that's what you're recapturing for me when I play you know, retro games that I've actually never played before. So that, yeah. that would be the, that's, that's what really, it's not so much getting nostalgic for, for playing a game I've already played. I mean, that's, that's not really my thing so much. Right. For me, I feel like if I, if I appreciate games as an art form, for me, the, the part, the, the element of the art form that I appreciate most is design. So, that, you know, there, there are some people who are graphics whores. That's a very derogatory way to put it. But some people who are, <laughs> are really into the visual presentation. There are people who are way into the music of games. So people appreciate games from a lot of different sides. And for me, it's very design-oriented. I'm all about how is the game put together? How does the game make me think? And, you know, does it scratch these little places in my cerebellum or whatever that that make me keep wanting to play it or that or that just get me excited and a lot of times this happens in very mainstream games you know things that aren't esoteric at all i mean i'm occasionally i'll dabble in weird shit like nobi nobi boy but that, that <laughs> dabble is the appropriate word that actually that. is not my kind of game at all because it because really has the no, absence of design isn't it <laughs> right it has no structure it has no goal so it, it's it's neat to me it is very artsy in a way, but it's not the kind of that game doesn't capture what I like about video games. What I like about video games is Metroid. It's when you create this world that's very intricate and very deliberately pieced together and and mapped out. It, you know, someone really thought about it's this. It's mapped out in such a way as to require you to walk it enough times that you'll know it like the back of your hand. <laughs> I mean, not if, necessarily. <laughs> if I could defend Johnny's rep, one of the few games that I have played online with him was Grand Theft Auto 4. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's keeping it real. Which, as we all know, everyone John, on this podcast never again. is an unreal. 
reserved uh, lover of that game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I don't, I don't rewrite reviews anymore, but if you go back and read some of my, and I have over 150 reviews on the site, and if you go back and read those, almost all of them tend to revolve around the design of the game, because that's the most interesting thing to me. I mean, if every level is basically the same, I'm not going to like that game. It's also it's also one of the most tangible things, and when right. you're reviewing the game, that's important because people's perspectives on the music or the art design or all that. I mean, you know, yes, obviously reviewers should comment on those, but that is more personal. And you know, I think to me, it's design, what yeah. makes a game. It, to me, it's what sets video games apart from a lot of other kinds of art. You know, so to me, it's not that interesting to comment on the graphics or the sound of a game. There's not much I can really say about it. That's not really my forte. But I can get really, I mean, I can talk about Metroid for an hour. And I'm not going to talk about how atmospheric it is. I'm going to talk about how this power-up leads to this power-up. and How it works. How these, these different areas of the map link together in multiple ways. And how this boss is designed to get you to try a certain ability in a way that you haven't really needed to use it before. That's the level that I operate on. And that's the most fascinating thing about video games to me. I'm not sure if I should make this reference because Heroes is shit. But Johnny is... <laughs> Siler. Uh, yeah, was... absolutely. I'm the Siler of... Yeah, absolutely. You know who else is Siler? Mega Man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're right. Wow, that's... Little bastard. I never thought about it that way. That's fantastic. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the great thing about games is there's such a multifaceted medium that you can appreciate them from all these different perspectives you know absolutely and, so, mm-hmm. yeah. and, and that's a great thing about subjectivity and and criticism i mean you know like greg was saying that you know in terms of game reviews you've got the artwork and the the graphics on a technical level and the sound and you know maybe these things are very subjective but to me the game design is even more subjective because to me that's not something you can just say well it's either good or it's not for every single person on the planet. No, to that's, me, that's true. Very personal. In terms of in terms of your enjoyment of it, it's 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 subjective. But there's an right. analytical component to disassembly how it actually works. And I'm a very analytical person for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean that, that you can, there are certain games you can look at the design elements and say this really isn't designed in such a way that someone should enjoy it. <laughs> I'm serious. I think he's right. In the sense, sometimes there are, for instance, games, incentive structures. I'm big on incentive structures in games because that's really your window into how the developer wants to, you know, wants you to play the game, how they're framing your choices. And sometimes they just don't hang together. And it's just like that, that is a basic kind of failure. The The N64 rare platformers, and especially Donkey Kong 64, are, are a good example of this. I mean, I refuse to believe that anybody really enjoyed collecting. 900 bananas they just didn't but means to an end they wanted to get in the door so they had to that was how the developers incentivized collecting the bananas you get to get your ass in the door that's the thing though i mean there are always people out there who don't mind doing that like you know look at a lot of rpgs where like especially the the old school rpgs where you had to to keep progressing in the story you had to sit there and grind out your characters and get a bunch of levels because you knew a boss would smoke you is that bad design? I don't know. At the time, no, it wasn't. But now, it's evolved to the point where you could look at it and say it is. See, a lot of times what I like in RPGs is not so much the progression of my stats are going up so I can kill this dude in two hits instead of three, but it's See, my stats that. are growing so I learn a new spell or I can equip a new 
sword that has a special power that lets yeah. me play these battles in a different way. It's a, yeah, it gives you new choices. I mean, that's right. that's the real thing. Right. I think you know. The, I think if it's purely arithmetical, that is kind of meaningless. Right. I guess to to answer the original question, what motivates me to continue gaming, it's that I'm always looking for new things to do in games. I almost said new experiences, but that's such a vague term. Mm-hmm. You could change everything to blue and it's a new experience. That's not enough for me. <laughs> I, I want to do something new. I want a game to push Avatar me Avatar did that. I want a game to make me think in a different way. I want a game to make me have to manipulate my thumbs on the buttons in a way that I've never had to before that's fun and interesting and challenging. I'm a very mechanical person, I guess, when it comes down to it, is that I care about how the game is put together and and what you're doing from one moment to the next and how those all flow. And, And I think these days, games more than ever are pushing those boundaries. I mean, at the point where I stopped playing games as a teenager, it was kind of in the in the doldrums of the 16-bit era when games were really becoming too homogenized. And mm, yeah, no, what, no, no. what really brought me back into it was the dawn of the N64 when they jumped into 3D, a very rocky road, but all of a sudden, <laughs> oh, now we have all these new things that we can do. And even in modern game revivals, like things like Retro Game Challenge, Shadow Complex, etc., uh, even Chronos Twins, which I talked about earlier, they're, they're predicated on very old concepts in gaming, but they always bring something new to the table. They have you, you know, it's a very familiar formula, but they give you new things to do and they play with your expectations and they, and they, they mess around with your, your previous knowledge of how these games are supposed to play in order to trick you into kind of thinking about things in a different way. And that's very exciting for me. And that's why I keep playing games. And every game that I play, I'm hoping that it delivers that kind of experience for me. Yeah, it's it's similar with me. I mean, I, the thing is, I've played games for so long over such a period of time and so many games that I've seen a lot of the kind of typical stuff. So for me, I really get, get joy out of just kind of seeing like, oh, okay, well, I've seen that concept before, but what are they going to do next? I mean, where are they going to take it? What tweak are they going to put on it that's going to make me interested again? So you're, you're a big proponent of Muscle March then, huh? Absolutely. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I, mean, I think, you know, definitely the balance. I mean, you, I, I feel like, again, there has to be, you know, that there a balance uh, to sort of maintain your interest to the maximum extent in the medium between, you know, the really innovative kind of stuff that feels very fresh and then, you know, the adroit sort of uh, tweaking and wrinkling of existing experiences but again in terms of that balance i just i don't really think any other media has, has got such a favorable balance as video games right now because video games are relatively so young i mean you know with films yeah the best films are original and interesting and maybe they play on established archetypes very cleverly and they you know do things you haven't exactly seen before and all that but i mean it's all been so pashed over you know if if you if you bother to go back and watch a lot of old films yeah. Um, it's a lot more limited, the kind of playground that they've got to uh, experiment with in that medium compared with video games. So, I mean, of, of all the media to stick with right now, I think there's a compelling case to be made for games over the others. All right, well, let's wrap up that question and move on to the second one, which John is going to read. Adolf from Arlington, Texas writes, uh, Christmas just passed and I feel bad that I didn't give anything to the crew of RFN. I'm not talking about anything big, but I would love to give a small token as thanks for having so many great episodes of RFN for free. Can I give specific gifts to specific people, or would you rather I send a care package to Nintendo World Report headquarters? Where is that, by the way? <laughs> it's on the internet. 
um, <laughs> among other places. So I'm not I'm not actually sure that Adolf meant for this to be read on the air, but I wanted to pull it out because uh, I wanted to tell him and everyone else that uh, thank you very much for all the great letters of support and gratitude that you send. A, a lot of them we don't read on the air or we have to clip uh, for time issues. And certainly uh, we don't want anything material. We definitely appreciate the offer. But I did want to take the opportunity to kind of explain some of the things that you can do to help the show and to help some of the partners of the show if you feel so inclined. So first off, I would say, uh, you know, we, we mention this often, but if you can rate us on iTunes and maybe give us some kind of semi-positive review, that would be great. <laughs> Too high, Johnny. Come on. <laughs> semi-positive. <laughs> semi-positive <laughs> Well, I don't completely guy. hate them. <laughs> um, no, seriously, that's one of the best things that you can do to help. That's one of the most helpful things that you can do, and if you haven't done it. Also, writing in great, interesting, thought-provoking letters or even just random trivia that you want to know is awesome. You know, just sending in an email that we might be able to read on the show that helps so much. And we love hearing from new listeners. We love hearing from people we haven't heard from in a while. We love getting really good discussion questions from people. A lot of people email us almost every week and we really appreciate it. Even if we don't read your email every week. So that's a really nice thing that you can do for us. Also, I would say, if you haven't already, check out NintendoWorldReport.com. Obviously, that's the mothership of this podcast. and That's I the think, headquarters. <laughs> yeah, that's the headquarters. <laughs> you know, we probably do have a pretty sizable listener base who found us on iTunes or through some other means and have never really visited Nintendo World Report. I mean, it, you know, we're, we're not just pimping it because we have to. Uh, in fact, I most certainly do not have to, and I do it because I want to. Uh, and that website's been around for almost 11 years. It's the real deal. And, uh, I mean, if you, if you care about the things that we talk about on this show, you really should be visiting that website. And that really does help us a lot. Uh, and, and it helps continue to support the podcast as well as the website itself. <laughs> yes, yes, it does. Mm-hmm. You know, sign up for the forums and get involved in some discussions. That's a great way to support the website because it shows ad banners. It gets you involved in the community. I mean, I'm just being totally honest here. That's really, you know, that's one of the reasons this podcast exists is to support the website. And in turn, the website supports the podcast and keeps us on the air every week. It's a cycle. It is. You know, check out the sister podcast that we have, uh, Radio Trivia Podcast Edition, which I'm on almost 50% of the time. So I care a lot lot about that show as well. I go way back. And then the newscast, which is kind of our baby, but uh, that's a really good show too. And one final thing, if you really want to support the, if you really want to support the show or, or, or express your gratitude in, in any way, uh, and you happen to like the music that we play at the beginning and the end of the show, uh, sometimes during the breaks, that's from a band called Jason Ricci and New Blood. We don't talk about them nearly enough on the show. Uh, Jason is a good friend of mine. I've known him for several years and, uh, he's very graciously allowed us to use his music on the podcast and if you like that music and you like our podcast, I would highly encourage you to check it out on iTunes, Jason Ricci and New Blood. And, uh, you know, if you like their music, go ahead and buy it. Even send him an email and let him know that you heard about him from our show. We're not going to get any kickback from it, but I know he would appreciate it. <laughs> I know he would appreciate it. Why are we talking no. <laughs> we, get, we get nothing. Trust me. None of these things that you can do result in us getting paid. So yeah, ever. <laughs> literally nothing. Yeah. 
Like, you can send the site money. No, we're not getting a cent of that. Nope. Nah, it's just going to go to pay the server bills. So, all in all, we're we're being pretty selfless here. Uh, I really <laughs> appreciate the offer from Edoff and, and everybody else who always says, hey, thanks a lot for what you do. Well, you made a very eloquent case for all that, but if I were to tell you that the most frequently given, from my experience listening to other podcasts, gifts is relatively expensive alcohol, would you reconsider <laughs> your position? I, you know, I wouldn't argue, but I just, I just stocked up today. Uh, you can always we gift us stuff. I'm just saying. John, I'm just, uh, I'm just throwing it out. I'm just talking. I mean, jo- pure... no, John, John likes Muscle March, but is he willing to pay for it? Well, he shouldn't have to. Is all, all I'm I put it, I put it to <laughs> our <laughs> listeners and readers. You know what? <laughs> I'm at the will of the people ultimately. So all listeners, I encourage you to email John and tell him that until he buys Muscle March, he's I'm going to get the man. shittiest games now. You have no idea. John, look forward to Giant Sprite Fighter coming your way. <laughs> Uh, all right, so uh, we have one last email today. It's intended for James, so I'll read it. David from Germany writes, Do you think there's a chance for Zangeki no Regenlife, the game formerly known as Dynamic Slash, to be released in the West? Ordinarily, I wouldn't expect it, but considering it is a Motion Plus-based game at a time when Nintendo seems to be hurting for more Motion Plus games, do you think there's a chance it will come over? And I know James is the resident ultra fan of the of Zengeki no Regen. <laughs> I saw a thirty second trailer and immediately thought I must own this game that we'll I know. Get. It's like disaster. You're just you're. Well, so here's the problem it, so. with with Zengeki no Regen Left. They've 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 taken the, <laughs> the name. <laughs> no, kind of. They've taken the unorthodox approach of delocalizing it from its other name, Dynamic Slash. <laughs> I don't think going backwards and making it more Japanese. I don't consider this to be a solid sign of a localization. Well, James, can you explain what this game is and why we should care about it? Well, it's campy, for which is why I'm, I'm excited about it. But basically, it's a motion plus game where you cut the heads off things. Big mm-hmm. monsters with a sword. Giants. Yes. And that, I mean, that's it. And it's, it's, it's the Earth Defense Force guys. Yeah, it. it's, it's Earth Defense Force with swords. And lots of blood, apparently. <laughs> yes, but, and blood. <laughs> I mean, the interesting thing about this game in terms of the, the I find is with relation to the motion plus part, because, I mean, it is, it is a fair point in terms of, you know, we've kind of spoken to it recently ourselves. There's such a dearth of motion plus stuff, you'd think they'd be quite eager to be able to put something out uh, to keep a little trickle going for people who are interested. But some of that goes to, I think, how integral is motion plus to this game? How significant is its usage? You know, as we, James mentioned last week, you know, it's in Avatar, but it's kind of trivial. And what you've got with... Well, we think uh, it's Z- an Avatar, let's put it that uh, way. <laughs> oh, fair <laughs> with Zangeki, no regular, it's, uh, it's got classic controller support, and you know, traditional you know, non-Wii Motion Plus Wii remote controls. So it's like, is the Motion Plus really doing that much? I don't think that we really know yet. There's not a whole lot of impressions out. I, I, I'm aware that apparently Nintendo is going to be circulating demos of this to Japanese retailers in the not-too-distant future. It, it's coming out pretty soon. So, <laughs> pretty soon. Yeah. Uh, so maybe we'll hear from the reports in Japan uh, then really you know, is Motion Plus like a really important part because... I mean, what I've seen seems to be like maybe with the traditional Wii Work controls, it's almost like you draw a line of how you're going to slash and then it slashes that way. Now, if you had Motion Plus, maybe you wouldn't have to draw the line and you just kind of do it uh, or something. I mean, it's, it's it's really difficult to tell from the See, video. I was wondering if maybe the line, because it looks like they follow the line. In the tra- I wonder if the line's like a guide. Like, yeah. This is I'm- how you have to slash your enemy. 
But do you? But the question is, like, I guess, like with the normal Wii Remote accelerometer, I don't know how you could follow that. So maybe you'd have to do it with like the pointer or something. Uh, Whereas, yeah, like, maybe. if you've got Motion Plus, mate, if you've got Motion Plus, then it just becomes like the speed slice in Wii Sports Resort. Uh, maybe you know uh, th- that that would be cool. I mean, if it really does kind of streamline the gameplay and makes it more natural, that would actually be a big deal. And maybe it would be something of a showcase that uh, uh, that would have merit as a, as a Western release as well. I, I mean, let, let's be honest. The reason that I got excited about this game was a minute and a half trailer, of which a minute and ten seconds is either video or logos. <laughs> <laughs> I. I, I I mean, the game is so clearly over the top. Absolutely, yeah. which is but, I mean, that could fantastic. be very fun. I mean, Mad World is is all about being over House the top, of the certainly. Dead. And, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> House, of the, House of the Boop Dead. I mean, I don't. I, I kind of think it's so kind of over the top as I'm not sure that it would necessarily compromise Nintendo's image publishing it or anything like that. I don't. I don't think that's really much. They're, of a worry. they're not developing it though, are they? So no, they, they're not developing it, but they, if they're publishing it and like people wanted to kick up a fuss, it would go back to Nintendo. But I don't think anyone would because it's, it's pretty patently silly. And, and I mean, but I mean, they could certainly pass off the publishing to somebody else. Uh, yeah, but we found Nintendo is kind of reticent to do that. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. this—that's the other element of this question. I mean, leaving aside, you know, how big a deal the Motion Plus is for a second. Let's look at their previous history. Some of the games that have not come out in the West that have come out of Japan from Nintendo. Disaster Day of Crisis obviously did make it to Europe, so I mean, there's that, um, but they didn't make it to America. I mean, the biggest theory we have on that is that it's a quality control issue, frankly. So, <laughs> the lack of quality if, uh, could no, not so, be I controlled. Mean, if, you, if you have faith that this, uh, based on the team's previous work, that this will be a, an enjoyable game, maybe you don't think that's a problem. You've got stuff like Captain Rainbow, which is just very odd and Japanese and would require extensive localization, things like that. And, which and tanked. Let's, let's point yeah, that I mean, out. And it has a lot of in-jokes to games that haven't even been released here. Let me yeah. rephrase that. It is sure. one big steaming in-joke for games that never came out here. Yeah, mm-hmm. like the one I mentioned to kick off new business. Yeah, so. which is in there, yes. And, and then, of course, this Fatal Frame, which again has been raised the quality control issues that, you know, that the, the, some of it was the way the camera worked, perhaps, and that, you know, they, the grasshopper uh, weren't really necessarily willing to fix it, uh, perhaps, is, is what's been speculated. So, all these sorts of things might not apply to uh, Zangeki, the regular. So, maybe on, th- on those grounds, there could be. Some hope for it. The only, obviously, the name would have to change. The like, only the only game I could think of where they didn't publish a game that they originally published in Japan. It comes right out as Cubivore, which was Atlas. It hasn't happened recently. No, I I'm recall. just saying. That's the only one it, I can think of. It did happen more back then. I mean, you know, we talked about Ogre Battle '64, right? Which was published yeah. by Atlas in America, and there were a number yeah. of cases back in that era. But I think recently, a lot of times, it seems like Nintendo has first kind of first dibs on certain games and if they publish them in Japan and they decide they don't want to bring it to America, it ends up lost in limbo. When you Mm -hmm. have situations like Fatal Frame where basically Nintendo said, well, you'll have to ask Tecmo about that. And Tecmo said, well, it's not our call. Ask Nintendo. So basically they're both (laughs) blaming each other for the fact that it's not coming out in America. Well, I, I think one potential problem for this game is that just from the trailer, it looks like there is a lot of 
ridiculous dialogue. And that is means there is a significant localization burden put on whoever decides to publish this game in the United States. Well, on that topic, an interesting example of a game that didn't come out in uh, America, that did come out in Europe from Japan, is uh, Trace Memory slash Another Code R. Uh, oh, yeah. with the, the, you've based on the DS uh, it was a launch game or very close to launch wasn't it for DS uh, yeah uh, not, it wasn't close. launched probably but it was, it, was, it was early it was an early DS game you know, sort of adventure puzzle game you used a lot of the DS's sort of specific features at the time and now it's on the Wii and it you know, nice graphical presentation and uses Wii remote puzzles and all that it kind of got lukewarm reviews um, but they chose not to bring it out in America, but did choose to bring it out in Europe where the localization is massive because you've got the five different languages and yet it has reams of text. In fact, one of the biggest criticisms of the game that I've read of the less charitable reviews is that it has too much text. There's too much reading, <laughs> that, that it's too words, wordy. Words, 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 words. Five languages worth of that. They were willing to do that for Europe and not for America. That to me is quite curious. Well, you know, I mean, it comes down to, I think, now that Nintendo has given its divisions more uh, rope to hang themselves with than they used to have. So I think <laughs> you, you'll you'll see Nintendo of America, who's had kind of some independence for a long time, more willing to go. No, no, we're gonna pass on that guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas, whereas I think Europe is still kind of relatively new to the whole doing its own thing game. Well, I don't know. I mean, they they passed on Excitebots, and you know, they good call. Because I mean, Nintendo's not making it anymore. <laughs> they can't buy it on Buy.com anymore. I mean, perhaps this could actually. I mean, who knows? This could be a case where it comes out in America, not Europe. I think ultimately it will come down to you know, release schedules. You know, what fits in. But you know, I mean, another case of that is Pikmin Two New Play Control. It seems to me that because we didn't have Excitebots, that we did get Pikmin Two New Play Control because there was a gap in the sort of release lineup, whereas you didn't really need it in America, so you didn't end up getting new play I think I'll decide what games I need and don't need. Thank you very much. (laughs) As it applies to the regional subsidiaries. So (laughs) the point being that just something that's not even really to do with the game itself could actually influence whether it comes out or not, whether they think they need just a little bit of something uh, stopgap stuff. Well, what could be telling here is if this game gets comes out in Japan and how it does. I think that's really when we'll be able to say definitively what's going to happen because this game vanishes in Japan in, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Fatal Frame, Disaster, and Captain Rainbow, all different kinds of games, all pretty much big bombs. So, and and if if this game bombs, then we can pretty definitively state that my dreams will not be fulfilled. Which is why I'm a, which, which is why I'm a very relieved that they already committed to publishing Sin and Punishment Two in the West. And B would probably feel a little comforted if they just reaffirmed that in light of how it performs. <laughs> yeah, shit. <laughs> we, we can shit. ask for comment. You know, we are we are media. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, we already said that game's coming. Yeah, asking for comment from Nintendo is uh, that's a quixotic endeavor. You, you, you can ask. Yeah. Certainly, we don't comment on making comments. Sorry. Yes. I think if you ask them to confirm something they've already confirmed, you might confuse them enough to get info out of them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to wrap up Radio Free Nintendo for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to everybody who wrote in. You can send in your letters to be potentially read on the show or chopped in half with motion plus controls that's right 
to rfn at nintendoworldreport.com. We read every single email that comes in, and in fact, we read most of them on the show. So now's your chance. (laughs) Your odds are pretty good, actually. Uh, Please remember to vote in the retroactive poll. We'll have a link on the front page of nintendoworldreport.com, so it'll be easy to find. Just to vote for ActRaiser. It'll be right there. So that's the end of the show. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Later. See ya. Christian Bale's definitely the best Bruce Wayne, Mm -hmm. but Michael Keaton's the best Batman. Yeah, well, I have to say, I I wasn't a fan of Christian Bale's extra gruff voice. Me neither. I hate him. Extra gruff. I love him as Bruce Wayne. (laughs) (laughs) I think you make a beer called Cause Extra Gruff now. (laughs) It does that. It scratches your vocal cords on the way down. (laughs) Makes you mad. It's like a second puberty. And then you just had to go, swear to me! <laughs> Have you backed up everything you wanted to back up on that one? <laughs> like the last remnant save file? It's on his hard drive. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, and you've got the hard drive. It's there. Yeah, they so, actually tell you to yeah. take it off because, quote, we will not return it. I look forward I look forward to your house getting, you know, broken into and somebody stealing only that hard drive. <laughs> Oh, I would go on a fucking manhunt. John Lindemann cat burglar incoming. Shh. Be quiet, Greg. The glass cutter. <laughs> I, I come in like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. I'm going to have to sleep with it under my pillow now or something. <laughs>